Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a show about building black and brown wealth through entrepreneurship. Welcome back to another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. Today's guest is leading the path to help more black and brown founders, angel investors, and others to close the racial wealth gap. With over 30 years of experience as a business strategist, Jill Johnson is the co-founder of the Institute of Entrepreneurship Leadership. She is also spearheading the Making uh, making, uh, a Black Angels movement to drive diversity and inclusion in the angel investing sector. She is also the founder of Women of Color Connecting, an organization that builds a bridge between Black uh, women of color entrepreneurs and those in positions to open the doors. Jill's mission is to create a systemic level change. Jill, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you. Thanks, Zena. Great to be here. So your business was founded in two, 2002 as an independent not-for-profit that supports economic development through entrepreneurship. The institution helps ambitious entrepreneurs leverage the resources necessary to create sustainable and profitable business enterprises. Can you tell us the origin story of the Institute and how you got started in this work? Yeah, sure. And I don't know that it was so much that I ever set out to do this work. I just sort of fell into it. And, um, you know, I I think it's an outgrowth of um, my upbringing in a household uh, of entrepreneurs. My parents had a small business. They had a newspaper publishing company uh, that they have for about 20 years. And so I lived that life of being a, a business owner, essentially, with my parents. Um, my brother and sister and I had to work in the business. That's what we did. Um, that was the only job that I had, um, <laughs> I think, until my junior year in college. Um, it taught me a lot of responsibility. Uh, you know, I had my own set of responsibilities, but I really was able to see uh, as a business owner how you have to be the, the CEO and do CEO level things. And at the same time in their business, go out and get the papers delivered um, and uh, make sure that your product is getting into people's hands. So that was my experience. I then had the opportunity um, after I graduated from college to uh, go to the financial analyst program at Goldman Sachs and mergers and acquisitions. Well, there, uh, you better believe I saw a very different side of uh, owning a business and what that meant. And I had the opportunity to work on uh, a handful of deals where uh, someone had started a business and they grew that business to a very significant level. And they were able to sell that business and extract the value that they had created. And that was not something with which I had been familiar, that concept of value creation. My parents had always talked about the business in a way um, that was around uh, creating jobs for people in the community and, and keeping uh, creating jobs for the family and the family never having to want for a job at different points. My parents employed different family members. There are a lot of people who grew up in our town who that was their first job as newspaper carriers. Uh, I mean, imagine back then, right, when there were still newspaper carriers. But I still meet people today and, and talk to people today who say, hey, I was a carrier for city news. That was my first job. So that was the way that my parents talked about their business. So again, this notion of creating all of this wealth from your business, that was like a whole, that was a very eye-opening experience. Um, And it was just an eye-opening experience um, to see the level of wealth that even existed. I, uh, you know, I, I don't want to at all make it seem that I grew up in a, um, uh, in a, in a disadvantaged environment. Um, I did not. And I'm very clear about that. I had a lot of opportunity, a lot of privileges. I went to private schools, public schools, and eventually landed at, at Harvard. Um, but my experience to that point 
did not in any way prepare me for, you know, this, this awakening that I had to say, oh my gosh, wow, like that is real wealth. Um, and so start, you know, I'll fast forward that, um, having those two experiences. And then I, uh, for a period, I, I, after I left Goldman, I was there for three years, uh, for the financial analyst program. Uh, I went to, uh, back to work with my parents. Um, and then I, uh, was writing business plans during the dot-com boom. And again, I was able to see who was able to raise money and who had difficulty raising money and kind of all these experiences came together to say, why aren't more women-owned businesses, why aren't more uh, businesses owned by people of color um, able to generate that sort of wealth? And that was kind of what um, became the motivation for starting the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership, um, really as an organization that could uh, help to get more entrepreneurs of color on that path to wealth creation. Well, we, I'm sure we will dive more into that. That is such an amazing story. And by the way, my first job was also as a paper carrier for in my hometown. So I resonate <laughs> with that quite a bit. Um, tell us a little bit about women of color connecting. What is that? How does it work? Sure. What's how does that, you know, marry into IEL? Yeah, so sure. And and we call it IFL. Um IFL. You know, Thank you. People would not think the the four would be meaningful, but I said, you know. That, that you could say Eiffel rather than IEL, um, much to my children's chagrin. But um, <laughs> uh, the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership or Eiffel is the umbrella organization. That is the nonprofit uh, in, entity. Uh, within that, we have created uh, several different programs and each of the programs has a, a, a brand. Um, that is really, again, based on the uh, mission and the target audience of that particular program. So Women of Color Connecting is a program that we created in um, 2018 is when we conceptualized it. 2019 is when we launched it in February of 2019. And it is really an, an initiative to help to open doors for women of color who have the potential to grow scale exit. Um, you know, when you look at uh, the average revenue for a black woman owned business, um, uh, Latinx uh, woman owned business, um, the numbers are really small. They're, they're, it's abysmal. Um, and when I saw those numbers, and then even thinking about some of the experiences in my own life where I felt that there were people who attempted to take advantage of um, their situation or, or take advantage of what they felt was my situation. Um, I don't feel that they would have done that if if it were not for the fact that I was a black woman. Um they felt that they had resources. They thought that I didn't have resources. Um, and I see that all too often being the case um, where uh, women of color are not given the respect. We're starting businesses at faster rates than any other demographic. Um, but our businesses are not reaching those same levels. So, you know, there's a whole host of reasons for that. But even those that have the potential are just finding too many barriers. And many of those barriers could be overcome through relationships and through the power of relationship capital. So that's really what we focus on with Women of Color Connecting is how do we utilize the power of relationship capital to help open doors for more women of color to be able to build wealth from their businesses. For us, it's not just enough to be in business and to have a business or even just to generate income. Um, we really want to see more women of color uh, able to build these amazing businesses, extract the value so that they then become the angel investors. They're the friends and family money and they're putting, uh, you know, investing back into the community. That's awesome power of relationships. I really like that a lot. So then tell us about what is the making of Black Angels? Like, what is that project about? I mean, kind of probably says it in the title, but tell us a little bit more about how it works and what level of investments people have made to date and sure. who you're looking for. Sure. Um, and that that initiative, it, you know, it's funny, there, there are a lot of things in my life that 
uh, it sort of feels like I have fallen into it. Um, and that haven't necessarily been, um, you know, prescribed or planned, but I think that it's really important to be open to, uh, just what the universe is telling you, uh, that about the direction in which you should be going and, uh, the, the purpose, uh, for your just involvement in the world. And, um, when we launched women of color connecting, you know, again, the focus was on opening doors um, and leveraging the power of relationship capital. And we really had a focus on bringing the ally community to the table. All of the people who, who say that inclusion is important, all the people who say they care about diversity, um, let's give you something to do. <laughs> let's actually put that to the test, right? By, by you doing something. It's not just enough to say that it's important. You need to, you need to act. And so we developed this community around a handful of women of color entrepreneurs that we had selected. Um, but we were still hearing the same issues around capital. And, and capital, again, has been something that I've been hearing about since my parents had their business. One of their publications was the Minority Business Journal of New York and New Jersey. And uh, my father had these workshops about access to capital. So, again, I've been hearing about this, uh, you know, for the better part of my life. And um, as these women of color entrepreneurs, you know, were talking about access to capital, we said, well, hmm, what is the, the issue here? And we hear so much talk about venture capital and the minuscule amount of venture capital that goes to women of color. We hear about the difficulty in getting bank loans. Well, where does that start? It often starts with the fact that there's not the uh, investment capital from the very earliest stages. And again, while we talk about these, these later stage forms of capital, the reality is, it, the reality is, is that most businesses are funded by personal savings and friends and family. And that is the reality. Again, you know, media makes it seem like everyone's, you know, writing something on a napkin and raising venture capital. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's personal savings and friends and family money. But if you look at the black community, there is a lack of wealth that makes it, uh, very difficult for people to access personal savings because most of us don't have any and friends and family, you know, it's, it's again, knowing someone who can, uh, uh, fork over, you know, $10,000, $20,000 to help you get your business started. That's just not a reality for many, many, many black people. And so, and the, the other thing that we realized, and I want to point out is that it's that early stage capital that becomes the on-ramp to venture capital. It's what provides the runway for you to have enough traction in your business to demonstrate that you should be, that you're a good uh, investment opportunity. So uh, looking at that, we said, how do we create an impact at that very earliest stage? Um, angel investing. Well, when we started looking out uh, at the angel investing space, one of the things we saw is that there were not many Black people that are involved in it. So you go to the different angel groups, there are even many today that are focused on women, but within that group, you're not seeing broader diversity there. And, you know, they're making some changes, but by and large, um, it was still mostly white women. And so uh, now one of the things that they have demonstrated, though, is that there is a correlation between the uh, number of women that are angel investors and the number of receiving women receiving angel investment dollars. And so what I looked at, it said, well, if that's true for women, why shouldn't that be true for black people? So let's just, let's just do the same thing, right? Let's just use that model and do the same thing. And so that was how we started uh, the making of black angels. I'll have more questions for you about that in just a minute, but I know um, we want to talk about the racial wealth. Yeah. I, you know, Jill, thank you for, for that. And there are a few things that you said that are standing out to me. It's interesting, you know, Aurelia and I are angel investors now. Mac is investing. Uh, and I venture to say that our parents did not do that. And so you you did something really important early on and that you called out that you did have advantages in life, 
and that you did not grow up in a disadvantaged environment. But what you did call out is a difference in mindset around entrepreneurship. So your parents had the mindset of, you know, entrepreneurship as a job. They hired their self, right? They covered their own expenses. But what you're hitting on is really that value creation as you're talking about where entrepreneurship is a wealth generation tool. And that if we were to look at entrepreneurship in that way, some of these companies would actually have early stage capital. So it's a shift to value creation as a mindset, part exposure that you mentioned, like when you went into that program and saw entrepreneurship in a different light. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how you focus on that racial wealth gap and give examples of how you've seen that mental transformation for people so that they are looking at entrepreneurship from a value creation as opposed to I'm hiring myself, I'm good. Yeah. um, Thanks for that question. And I do think it's something that's really important to talk about because I think that that people often talk about uh, being a small business owner and being an entrepreneur as if the two are synonymous. I don't believe that they are. Um, I think that a small business owner mindset, um, and not to say that that you can't cross over, uh, because again, many people just, they're not aware, they don't know. So they can start as a small business owner and see a bigger vision. But the small business owner, really, it is about self-employment. There's something that you love to do. You do it well. And um, your objective is to do that as your job. Instead of going off to be employed by someone else, you are employing yourself and doing what you love. Um, And often, again, you're doing it because you have a passion for doing it or a skill at doing it. An entrepreneur is someone who is identifying a need in the market, a void that exists, and they're seeking to fill that so that they can create value and from that value, build wealth. And you're building uh, that value um, because there's enough customers. There are a lot of customers out there who need what it is you are providing. You're solving a problem for someone else. And so you may be solving a problem for something that you don't even like to do yourself, possibly, um, you know, you just may be the one who identified that there's a problem and you're building um, uh, an infrastructure that uh, the infrastructure that's needed in order to address that problem. And you're doing that at scale in a big way. And the whole goal is to, again, create value and create wealth and it's wealth for the shareholders. Um, whether you are the primary shareholder or whether you have lots of investors that are the shareholders, it really is all about the return. You know, how much time am I investing in something for the uh, potential of a return at some point in the future, hopefully sooner rather than later? And I think we have to be clear about that. You know, there every every school now has, you know, every college has an entrepreneurship program. Everyone talks about, you know, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. Um, and so I think we've we've um, conflated uh, entrepreneurship with simply owning a business or being self-employed. Um, and I think, you know, I want to stress there is nothing at all wrong with the mindset of being self-employed, if that is what you want. What I hope to do is to um, light a spark and help people that may have the potential to go from that, you know, small business mindset, or they just don't know any better um, to, to, to create that entrepreneurship mindset. Um, and, and in young people to, for them to have that entrepreneurship mindset so that, um, they're really working, you know, to their full potential. That's awesome. And so, you know, following along that, uh, my question really is, has there been any unique thing that you've learned or picked up along the way that you weren't expecting something that jumped out at you? I know for us, um, when I worked for the state of Maryland, we started a pre-seed fund specifically for women and minority led startups. And as a former entrepreneur myself, I thought I understood exactly what the problem was, what the issues were. But then when we started, you know, getting in applications to talk to the founders, you know, 
I started finding all these other issues that I didn't realize exist. And I also started finding a lot of um, individuals who were looking to start startups, but had really deep networks and connections and weren't using them to raise friends and family rounds because that was something they had never considered or the idea of asking somebody money for money was a sign of weakness. And like, that was just something that never occurred to me because I didn't have anybody in my circle I could ask for money. I thought that was just a thing. Um, and so for me, that was like, that smacked me in the face, like, huh, there, there's, there's all these other, there's still other problems beyond what I thought for you. Have you seen anything like that that's hit you as you've gone through this work? Yeah, I think that it boils down to, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, again, often if you have not had a certain level of exposure, um, you, you just don't know any differently. Um, and I'll give an example. I mean, I, I hope I'm not offending anyone, but, um, you know, I grew up drinking um, orange juice. It's going to sound silly, but, you know, the orange juice is frozen from concentrate. Um, you know, I have to mix it with water. Are you guys familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I grew up on that myself. The Tropicana, yeah. the frozen one, you have to put in there, fill up the can like four times, put the water in. The, the, the frozen orange juice, right? And and that's what my parents grew up on. So that's what we had. And then uh, lo and behold, I, I get married to someone who is an only child. So the sun rose and set on his head. And, um, you know, it was like, no, fresh, you know, Tropicana, just picked whatever it is. And I was like, huh, this does taste different. This is good. And... The whole notion for me, you know, uh, having that exposure, I realized this is what I want. I like this. This is good. But had I never had that exposure, I would have been just fine and and thought that the limit was this, you know, juice from from concentrate, um, you know, a bologna sandwich with American cheese on white bread. You know, that was lunch. That was that was, you know, something to eat. Um my kids today are kind of like American cheese, like, nah. And I just use those examples as, you know, kind of funny anecdotes uh, about exposure. You know um, what it is that uh, has been around you and, and what you see on a regular basis. For many of the entrepreneurs, um, that, you know, we are trying to, to cultivate and people who really, you know, are truly entrepreneurs and even uh, the small business owners, oftentimes they're trying to operate without a roadmap. They don't have people who have been around them to provide the guidance, who they can, you know, ask the questions, people who they know in their circles, who are angel investors, who they can say, what is it that you would be looking for? If, if you're going to, you know, if you were to do an investment, you know, what would you be looking for? Um, and that is where, again, many businesses owned by people of color are at a disadvantage. It's not just the capital, the money. It's also that relationship capital where other businesses, white owned businesses often have some networks where there's someone who's an attorney, an accountant in the network. So people can ask those questions and get sort of that familial incubation before they're even having to pay money to get certain services, right? And, and, and to get advice. So I just think so much of it is about exposure. And that's the piece that we have to um, be very sensitive to sharing information and not being afraid to ask questions. Um, and as you said, in our community, people asking for money, right? That's something you don't do. You don't even talk about money. And because oftentimes, again, it was, you know, how do you get it? How have you gotten it? Do you have any? Are you just kind of flossing, but you don't really have anything that, you know, what you're projecting? Um, and in many cases, we have had to grind for every single penny that we have. Um, in the white community, there um, uh, has often been, uh, you know, the, the inheritance, the wealth that's been transferred intergenerationally. Um, so it's just a different relationship with, with money oftentimes. 
I think it's a fear of money um, in a lot of cases. And when I started my business in 2005, and that was during a time where it was now it's I don't want to say it's fashionable to have your own business, but it's starting to become a trend and people want to jump into this um, into this arena and not knowing all of the the challenges, the risks that you face, because right, I think sometimes we glamour, we're glamorizing, yeah, being an entrepreneur. And I think it's, it might be because of social media. I don't know. Maybe that's something you can speak on as well. But I know when I first jumped into this, um, I didn't have any role models, no one to turn to. I just sort of started doing it. And my whole thing was, I just want to survive. I just want to survive, be able to pay my bills, be able to take a trip every now and then and just get through. It wasn't until I got involved with this network um, in 2013, where I even started to think about, oh, you can use entrepreneurship to build wealth. I, I mean, I just never thought about it. I never... And then after meeting more um, angel investors and um, VCs and meeting, you know, learning about the different resources out there, I was like, okay, why didn't I have all of this? So my question to you is, you went over the whole, you know, think about the small businesses and versus entrepreneurship. There are so many different definitions of entrepreneurship, right, that are out there. Um, can you go into your philosophy of what that means and what that is and, um, and, and how entrepreneurs need to start looking at using this to build wealth, to build your legacy and how, you know, how are you going to transfer this wealth onto the next generation? Yeah, I think adding on to what I said before that. If you are an entrepreneur, by definition, you are looking at how you're creating value. And the measure of that value is, you know, how many people want what it is you are providing. And when more people want that and, and you're, that's what leads to you being able to scale the business and in scaling the business, you're able to extract the value. The, the whole purpose from the very beginning is the value extraction as an entrepreneur period, full stop. It is not about, um, you know, uh, just employing yourself. And in fact, if, if someone else can run the business better than you, then you should be willing to step out because that will help the business to grow. Um, and you, you know, hear the stories of people who, um, were replaced as uh, the CEO from of the company. Uh, someone else was brought in, but they still have, you know, a, a um, significant ownership in the company. So uh, when that company has an exit, they're still getting wealthy, even though they were no longer uh, in charge and leading the leading the company. And so as an entrepreneur, that is your focus. It's how you are extracting value. So I want to talk about that extracting of value in the context of the angel investors, right? And then I want to also talk to you about kind of how we help more people to think about entrepreneurship differently and, and pull that into closing the racial wealth gap. But when you're, so tell me more about the making of a black angel program. Is it, is it a boot camp? Is it a training program? Is it just kind of a, what is it and, and how does it work if somebody's like, hey, I think I'd be interested in something like that? Yeah. So what we're doing and much of our uh, strategy was based on what we did last year uh, with live events. So, you know, we were having to figure it out, uh, you know, kind of in, in the virtual world. Um, but last year we did uh, a series of events that were really just awareness events um, in talking with some of the folks that are kind of part of our um leadership council, uh, it, and, and Mac asked earlier, you know, so what has been eye-opening? Um, it was eye-opening to me that so few people, uh, who would be considered in the high earner category, uh, who are, uh, black and brown are not aware of angel investing. And that's something I think that people who are in, uh, you know, the Northeast or on the West Coast or in certain circles 
just think that oh, everyone thinks of, of this stuff. You know, if, if you have been kind of in the investor uh, space, but it is really not widely known. And so we held uh, several events. Uh, actually, it was probably about uh, six events uh, through the course of, of 2019. And we invited people to attend to learn about angel investing and uh, how that can help to unlock capital for Black entrepreneurs. And, you know, again, the number of people who, when asked, said that they were familiar with angel investing. And we were specifically targeting the Black community, um, to be clear. And the number of people who said that they were familiar with angel investing, you know, was a handful at best. And even those who knew something about it still didn't really know about it. They had just kind of heard of it. And so um, based on that, we decided, okay, this is a thing and we need to make sure that one, there's just more awareness about this. But then two, uh, once people become aware, how do we activate them? as investors? How do we get people to write that first check? Now, again, what we came to understand and realize is that um, when people are just gaining exposure to this and it's like, okay, so wait a second, I'm going to invest $10,000 or $20,000 into a company and that money could just go up in smoke and I never see it again. You know, that's disconcerting for a lot of folks, you know, when, again, you started from nothing and had to build all the way up, right? That this 10 grand could just go up in smoke. Um, and so we realized that we had to create, uh, one, some additional training um, to help walk people through what the process is, how all of this works and and how to think about um, uh the, the deals and, and the kind of the life cycle of a deal. Um, and the fact that, you know, you create your own investment criteria. So if you want to invest in just women, if you want to invest in just black owned businesses, if you want to invest in businesses that are just in, you know, Texas, that's all up to you. You make those decisions. Um, but after we did some, some training, we were then still finding the difficulty in people getting to the point of writing that first check. So what we've done is to create some uh, experiential opportunities so that people have a, uh, the, the prospective investors um, that we're cultivating have an opportunity to um, hear presentations by founders who are um you know, raising capital. Um, so it's, it's almost kind of like learning on the job. Uh, we have experienced angel investors uh, who are part of these, what we call on entrepreneur showcase events. And we're doing those now online. Uh, so having the experienced angel investors and people who are not necessarily black, but, you know, it's just people who are experienced angel investors, having them together creates sort of a mentoring relationship. Uh, the prospective angel investors are able to hear the thought process and how someone uh, asks uh, certain questions, um, you know, how they think about the issues or challenges for that entrepreneur. Um and how they think about, you know, the, the, the upside potential. So having everyone together in that environment, again, you know, creates this thing of one, I can ask any question. It's not, you know, stupid. Um, <laughs> they feel like um, uh, they have support in, in even just walking through the process. And so it's a safe environment for just learning on the job about angel investing. There's never any pressure to make an investment, you know, but if someone says, oh, I, I like this deal, they also sometimes really can welcome that there are other people who made that same decision, right? Um, but then there are also people who didn't decide to do it and they're learning from the people who said, this is not the right opportunity for me and they can, you know, learn why. So it's, we, ha we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, it's a great group of people. We're bringing people in all the time. We are going to be setting our schedule for um, 2021 um, pretty soon. So we'll be again, holding awareness events, training events, and then moving people through that experiential learning I think opportunity. That is fantastic. I mean, in, in full transparency, 
Christina and I met through a, an angel boot camp program. And so I think there's something to be said for that kind of experience in having somebody walk you through the whole process and then doing it with other people and, you know, writing a check in a fairly low pressure environment. Um, and, th and that, in so I was writing deals for VCs and angels before the first dot-com boom and bust. So I'd been in and around the space for 20 years and also didn't realize I could be an angel until somebody said to me, Hey, you know, there's this Latina that founded this boot camp. You should go. You can learn how to be an angel. And I was like, really? So, you know, it, it is about what you don't know what you don't know. And then um, I've since co-founded an angel group for women investors, investing in women founders. And I really want to highlight what you said before. I was adamant. I'm not joining this group and be the only woman of color. There's got to be other women of color that are members that are on you know, on the board that are in positions of decision making and so forth. So I think that's absolutely fabulous that you've come up with that and done that. And now you're making that um, program available virtually. Let me ask. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And l let me actually be clear. Our uh, ultimate objective is for people who are, you know, that, that we're supporting through this Um is for them to join angel groups. We're not trying to be an angel group ourselves. And one of the things that we highlight also through our process, we, we want them to get to know people that are part of other angel groups. So we welcome people who are, you know, experienced investors who are part of various angel groups to be involved, um, uh, to be involved with us because we feel like that's almost like a, a recruiting tool even uh, for the angel groups. And what we help people to understand is that there's a fit for everyone. So, you know, if you like one angel group and it's mostly white men and you want that environment to be around a lot of, you know, rich guys, like go do you and, and do that, right? Because that helps to open the door in that environment. If you want to be in an environment where it is all women, if you want to be in an environment where there's people off from your college, um, you know, that for us doesn't matter. We just want to see people progressing uh, to joining angel groups so that, again, as we see more founders that are coming through raising money, those doors will be opened and there will be someone in more groups who is receptive to, you know, really uh, trying to pull them yeah. through. And, and the more people you get involved in the ecosystem, the more people learn about it, the more. Yeah, it's just amazing. Right. And hopefully, you know, in, in, in three to five years or so, there won't even be a need for this because it will just be so commonplace that everyone's talking about angel investing and, and people are having conversations with their kids around the dinner table about the investments that they've made. And those kids are talking about, you know, investments and things like that. So it would just be commonplace. I love it, Jill. Normalizing angel investment, particularly as part of a portfolio and starting early, you know, starting with our kids. So the question that we have for everyone is who is your angel tribe? And yeah, I think, you know, you don't have to just be in one group, right? You can have multiple groups just as we have multiple friend groups. We've worked for multiple employers. Um, but the truth is, and I just want to go back to something you said, and I loved your, your orange juice example, right? It, it made me think of Mike, Mikey, he likes it, right? Like it's, you don't know until you try or you've been, you know, exposed. But for many Black Americans specifically, Wealth building isn't a muscle memory in our DNA, right? It goes back to just slavery and the fact that, you know, there was a generation of Black people who were not able to generate wealth. And so I'm wondering, and they weren't able to create. Well, well, let's, be, let's be clear to Christina, though. Let's be clear. Generations. Yes. Many. Many, yes. many. And something that... Um, that uh, for me jumped out. I was giving a talk um, over the summer, I guess early in, in the year. Um, and I was looking through some materials and it was written there in black and white and it jumped at me. I'm like, I know this, but I didn't really fully absorb the fact that we have been out of slavery for far less time than we were in slavery. And that's something not a lot of people think about. So when you look at, you know, oh, why haven't black people been able to catch up? Why haven't they been able to turn the corner? And, you know, that was a long time ago. No, actually, it wasn't that long ago. 
And um, the the amount of time that uh, other groups had, especially white people, had to build wealth in this country, you know, it was hundreds of years, right, to build wealth. And even once we were out of slavery, there were still legalized segregation. There were laws that were put in place. Black people were not eligible for FHA loans, which were uh, in large part responsible for building the white middle class. It was a very intentional program to build up the white middle class. And black people were not eligible. There were, um, it was written into the deeds in some properties that this property may not be sold to a black person. So when you think about uh, wealth generation for, for black people, that's only been in like two generations, maybe really. And, and, and not even because we were just trying to get our, our footing, you know, coming out of the sixties, the people were just trying to just get their, just get their footing. But we weren't really building wealth still at that yeah, point. I mean, you're, you're so spot on about that. I've been talking to my grandmother over COVID helping her write this book and it's interesting when she talks about going to college, you know, she, she did get a scholarship to go, but her whole focus was, I just need to get through and get my degree, right? She couldn't worry about anything else that was going on because she was determined to be the first person in her family to graduate. So that was, that's the number one thing. Now we have, you know, in my generation, in my, my daughter's generation, the opportunity, I think, to explore more. Um, but it was just interesting to go back to see, hey, we... I had to be the only black girl in my school. I had to get through. Like I, you know, it was interesting the challenges that were yep. just in this, in our lifetime, right? In our lifetime. So many. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like we can just talk about in our lifetime and go back to our parents and what they had to endure. Um, and, and, and that's where the wealth building starts. So it is no wonder that we don't have the personal savings, the friends and family money um, to have that on ramp and, and have the, the the runway and the on ramp to getting to these other forms of capital. And when you think about it, the uh, these these structures uh, just were not even built for black people. In fact, uh, a lot of the parameters were built to be exclusionary in the first place. Right. And then once the once things have have happened and settled in the way that they have housing patterns and and all of that, then you don't even have to have the laws. But they're so entrenched. You know, the the impact is so entrenched that it's very difficult to undo. Well, one of the things I want to add to entrepreneurship for our parents at that time wasn't that an option. It just wasn't. It was it was all about getting a job and just like you said, getting through. and. What I love what's happening today is this rich discussion that we're having on entrepreneurship and having it and using it as a way to build wealth. My question is, you know, you, 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 you're touching on this and I would love to hear more about what Congress, I mean, some of the laws that Congress hasn't have enacted since then, you know, to keep us from, you know, help to build this wealth and transfer it. Oh my goodness. That is a very layered question because I do, you know, there was a a great book that I listened to actually, uh, the color of law, um, that really talks about the government's role in excluding black people from being able to build wealth. And I do think that there's no two ways about it that, um, that the, the, the role that government played and if they played that significant of a role in excluding us from building wealth, they need to play a role in helping people to helping black people to recover, um, from that legacy of slavery and, and lack of wealth building. So, you know, even if you excluded the slavery part, right? So again, that was government sanctioned, right? Government sponsored. But even if you excluded the slavery part and said, oh, that's, that's back so far, we can't do anything about that, can't change history. The fact that the government um, 
uh, in more modern times, put laws in place to exclude black people from building wealth. Even that, it would seem that there are reparations that are required. And I know anytime you say reparations, you know, that becomes this political hot button and people, you know, um, look sideways and well, that's not possible, et cetera. But look at all the countries that we have rebuilt around the world, right? Based on uh, our actions as as a country. Um, look at the supports that we provide to uh, the farming community. Look at the supports that um, uh, that we give um, to major corporations, right? To keep jobs here. We find money for a lot of things that we want to find money for. And so, you know, I think that there are a number of things that um, the government can do. Um, you know, certainly the power of uh, procurement and using dollars, uh, contract dollars. Uh, you know, money is great and getting investments great, but there's nothing that's better than revenue and generating <laughs> revenue and getting contracts. Um, and so using the power of procurement. Um, that is certainly something that the government can do. Um, the um, uh, power of um, just education. You know, again, it, it, education is an interesting thing where there is, uh, you know, kind of this this federal overlay, but then every place handles it differently, right? In different states, different localities, they handle it all differently. But it has kept many kids from being able to get the opportunities and black and brown kids, especially from getting the opportunity that they need to be put in a position to build wealth. Right. Whether that is from high earning uh, job opportunities um, or go, being able to go into business for themselves. Um, so much of the tax code, um, again, favors people who are really wealthy. Um and, and so, uh, and even when you look, you know, something more recent, um, as, uh, opportunity zones, um, opportunity zones are something that could have been a tremendous, um, tool used for getting, uh, capital to, uh, businesses in black and brown communities. And instead it has essentially become, um, a, uh, <laughs> To me, it's it's more of an opportunity for another huge land transfer, essentially, um, and 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 accelerating gentrification that would have happened anyway. But it really provides an opportunity for acceleration of gentrification in these communities. Um, my feeling is that in the opportunity zones, there should be a requirement of of uh, ownership. Um, by community residents that if the developers are going to come in, you know, you're getting these great, you know, tax benefits and all these other things, um, there should be a requirement that the people in the community are equity participants in the project. Um, that is one. And it wouldn't be difficult to, uh, to create that as a requirement. Um, uh, there was something else that I was thinking of um, as well. Um, it will come back to me, but there's, 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 uh, another point. Um, I think, you know, oh, um, SBICs, um, these are small business investment corporations that, um, uh, the SBA, uh, is helping to facilitate capital going to small businesses. So the thing is everyone recognizes that small businesses are really important to the economy in general, right? But a lot of the money from these tools are not getting to black and brown businesses. So even if there is a requirement that a certain amount of money, if the government, um, government funded uh, programs, right? And money that's coming from the government, if there's a requirement that a percentage of that, uh, that a minimum percentage uh, is invested in black and brown businesses, that would be something positive. Again, keep in mind, and, and the, the issue that, that I really have, and after I you know read this book, this this notion that um, we hexes. And so even if, you know, the, this notion of reparations, to me, it's really smart people out there. The ones who figure out that if you're a black male between these ages, that your insurance should be higher than someone else's insurance, right? Those really smart people could figure out 
Um, and there, I, I'm sure there's a way to, to come up with what, um, a direct payment would be, um, or either tax, uh, credits, tax incentives, um, uh, things like that, that would help, um, uh, start to, to raise the level of our ability to create wealth. You'll have to give us the name of the book so we can share it with our listeners. <laughs> uh, the, the color of law. The color of the law. Color of, oh yeah, of course. Okay, that's the one you're thinking of. So we've talked a lot about barriers and what you're doing to kind of um, educate folks. Let's talk about entrepreneurship specifically. And you've talked about entrepreneurship as a definition being a business that you're using to create wealth to then be able to extract it at some point. So talk to us specifically about how you're teaching or helping or supporting folks to create wealth specifically through entrepreneurship. And and I ask that because we started the show, right? Talking about the fact that um, black women owned businesses make an average of $26,000 per year. And black male-owned businesses, 27, or did I get those numbers wrong? But right, 24 and 26. So what we're seeing is that, and, and, and the Latinx community is like right there, like we're really low numbers, right? So we're not creating wealth with the businesses in general that we have, but you're wanting to see that change. So talk to us about like what, what programs you're having or support or resources you're providing people. And maybe it's really at the core education and mindset in thinking about how we do this differently. But we want to hear from you. Yeah. So I don't know that it's as much about education as it is about exposure. I think that black and brown folks are really smart. We haven't had the exposure. So we don't even know to think about it. We, it's hard to envision having a multi-million dollar business having a, you know, hundred million dollar company um, because you've never seen it. You've never seen anyone do it. Um, and so that's why, you know, having, you know, Bob Johnson sell his company for $3 billion or whatever that was. Um, that's why that's so important. Having uh, Rich Lou Dennis and the Dennis family uh, building Shea Moisture, you know, no one would have said that that was a scalable company, what, you know, making some hair products and some skin creams and things and, you know, uh, selling it on 125th street, you know, that would have been laughed out of the door for most angel investors and VCs and lo and behold, right. Really scalable. Um, and, uh, you know, I believe that transaction was even larger than, uh, the BET transaction. So, um, I think, it's easy for people to say these business owners need to step up their game. These business owners are not educated enough. They need more training. Everybody can use more training. And, and yes, there are uh, some of the fundamentals that the businesses need, but when they get the right people around them, when they have those right relationships, they're, they're able to figure it out. They're able to um, uh, get things in place uh, in the way that they need to be. And so what we do with our uh, Women of Color Connecting uh, community, again, I mentioned, you know, it's about leveraging the power of relationship capital. And we um, identify, again, these amazing entrepreneurs who we believe have that potential to grow scale exit. And by... uh, activating a community around them. It's a community of people who one believe in them and they know that these people believe in them. Um, they are people who they can trust so that when we're giving advice about things, it's not taken as, you know, we're trying to train you. We're trying to educate you. It's that we're trying to give you the value, uh, the benefit of our knowledge, our wisdom and, and the mistakes that some of us have made. Right. And, and then they're able to take that, incorporate it. They have um, trusted guidance. They have uh, the people who are part of, uh, and we call it a success circle. Um, They have people that are part of their uh, inner circle that 
they can use as guideposts and and as a sounding board and people that they can rely on have their best interests at heart. I love that. And, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing up the, the BET example with Bob Johnson, because I think what a lot of people don't understand in that deal, he actually got a piece of Viacom out of it. Right. And he got an executive position, which actually led to greater wealth for him and his family beyond just the BET sale, which, you know, when we think about wealth creation, you think about growing your business, you think about succession planning, you think about next steps. I don't know if people always think that far ahead. And um, that is an example of somebody who was saying, hey, I turned owning this one TV station into being part of a conglomerate. Right. Um, But to that, you know, let's talk a little bit about you yourself, Jill. You know, for you, what do you see as an overarching theme of the work that you've done with the Institute, the making of Black Angels and then women of color connecting? What's the overarching theme for you and all of the works that you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have to say, you know, we have one other major program in there as well under Eiffel uh, that's called Small Businesses Need Us, which is about activating business professionals and experts um, for the purpose of supporting and helping COVID impacted Main Street type businesses. Um, you know, there's a problem out there uh, that a lot of people, again, are just underestimating. And again, it is disproportionately impacting black and brown small business owners, uh, Main Street type businesses. So, you know, that's the the third um, uh, area of focus that we have. But through all of our programming and my work and and my interest really, uh, again, I have to say is around uh, the power of relationship capital. I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, the challenge that I had with uh, a group of people who thought that they were going to be able to take advantage of of me and of a particular situation. Um, And they did not realize that my relationships run really deep. And I was able to pick up the phone call someone uh, and a a guy who we have a great relationship. He was my uh, oldest son's little league baseball coach and was able to pick up the phone, call him, say, hey, you know what? Here's what's going on. Uh, Can I get your your assistance in this? No problem. And, you know, three days later, we were talking through the issues and, you know, the whole situation took a much different turn. And as I look again at my own experiences, um, just going to Harvard, you know, my, my family's from the Midwest, Kansas and Missouri. I was born in Iowa. Um, and you know, my, my parents had to take that risk moving away from their family. They got a different level of exposure. I think about, wow, had they never moved, um, where would we be today? I, I wouldn't have the, again, that same exposure. Um, my parents both have advanced degrees, but they didn't know anything about Harvard and the Ivy Leagues and things like that. And, you know, I kind of heard about these things and applied. Um, But I, you know, I graduated uh, from a high school where I was walking down the hall and I had on an Oberlin t-shirt and one of the teachers, maybe not meaning anything negative by it, but said, oh, Oberlin, that's a really good school. Do you think you can get in there? And he had no idea. He wasn't even one of my teachers. He didn't know I was even applying to Ivy League schools. And, you know, I applied to 10 schools and was accepted at, at, at all 10 um, and, and several Ivies in there. Um, for me, the benefit of that was about the exposure. Um, so having that exposure there, I had one roommate who spoke two, two languages, another one who spoke four, I think, um, my freshman year. I didn't know kids who, who did that. That was, you know, I was like, wow, you know, this is what happens. Um, my, uh, oldest son, uh, had the benefit of, of doing a post-grad year, um, at a, at a prep school, uh, in Connecticut. Again, an, another level of exposure. Uh, my husband at a point worked for BET and worked for different consulting firms. So I've been able to have this lens into a lot of different worlds. Um, meanwhile, I also have family in areas where the best job is working at Walmart. Um, and so um, being able to, to see 
just how people move and operate in different worlds and understanding that sometimes all it takes is a spark of your, you know, um, your, your vision being made bigger um, because you're exposed to what is possible. And that's something my father always used to say is focus on what's possible. Um, for me, I think that is the, 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 the thread that's running through all the work that I do is with entrepreneurs. It is what is possible with investors and the people who say, well, we can't find any black deals, can't find any women of color deals. Let's think about what's possible. Let's open your mind. Let's get away from just what you know and what you see to what is possible. And I think for me, thinking about the possibilities is um, what makes me hopeful about the ability to create change and have an impact through the work that we're doing. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's fun stuff. I'm having a good time. All right, Jill, you know, this has been a really great conversation, but, you know, as somebody who is currently in the process of raising my first fund um, to invest in companies outside the major tech hubs, like outside Silicon Valley, New York and Massachusetts, at Rare Breed Ventures, uh, rarebreed.vc, if anybody wants to be an LP, you take minimum tech sizes of 10K. I can publicly solicit 506C. I'm going to put that out there every chance I get. But to that point, you talked about people investing in entrepreneurs. Do you talk to the angels about becoming LPs into funds? Because one thing that we see in our industry is uh, diverse fund managers tend to have more diverse portfolios. Um, so is that something that you talk about in your group or advocate for as well? Yeah, absolutely. And look, the reality is that people in general, are more comfortable with people who are like them, right? Who have some sort of similarity. They went to the same schools. They enjoy the same things. That is just human nature. And that's why when you look at the, you know, this whole conversation about diversity and inclusion, um, it's, it's only natural that if there were more black people involved in venture capital and private equity and, you know, all the sources of capital that are out there, that they would just naturally be bringing in more entrepreneurs um, of color, more, a more diverse pool. You know, we, again, we've seen it with women and it's because those are your networks. So when white men, you know, say things like, well, we just haven't been able to find any, I always start with, Look at your network. <laughs> you know, do you know anyone, you know, enough people who are not like you? And I think that the issue really uh, with um, uh, the funds that are being uh, led by people of color, black folks that are that are raising funds, it can be just as tough as I'm sure you have observed to raise money as it is for a black entrepreneur to raise money. You get the same questions. Well, where are you going to find the deals? Well, you know, the, the check sizes are, you know, how are you going to get this capital deployed? Because there's not the fundamental belief that black and brown people, and I will say especially black people, can actually produce an economic return. And that is the problem that I have with a lot of the um, major companies out there that, uh, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, uh, put all this money out on the street and, oh, we're giving, you know, tw investing $20 million in black owned businesses. And then you find out it's, you know, $5,000 grants. Um, again, helpful to ease the pain of some of these businesses uh, immediately. but on a deeper level, that money's not doing anything to change access to capital for these businesses, not at all. And again, it's saying that uh, you are worthy of our charity, you're not worthy of our investment. So um, one of the things that we do is, you know, we get people in who are interested in angel investing. We talk to them about just being active uh, or becoming activated as an investor. So whether or not that is joining an angel group, if you feel comfortable with that, great. We want you to do that. But if not, find your fit. Maybe it's that you uh, want to invest or you can invest in crowdfunding campaigns that companies are doing at a much lower level. You can invest, you know, $100, $200, $500 in those companies. And for those founders that are raising like that, that money is meaningful. Um, 
if uh, they can invest, uh, you know, higher amounts, but maybe they don't want to do all that due diligence work. They're busy people with busy lifestyles, you know, put money into a, uh, into a fund, most of which are considered micro funds, uh, micro VC funds, um, uh, write a $10,000, $25,000 check uh, to um, a venture capital firm um, that's raising money. Because again, you know, they're facing the same sort of barriers as the entrepreneurs uh, uh, about the be- their belief in um, the, the belief um, uh, in being able to execute on this plan to produce a return. Well, thank you again for joining us, Jill. Um this has been a very good show. I just want before we close out, um, Aurelia, Christina, Mac, do you have any more questions for her? Because uh, I know it's just been a fascinating I, I conversation. I don't have any questions. I just do want to highlight, Jill, the Black excellence in your story about, you know, the colleges that you got into, just the work that you did. You weren't letting anyone hold you back. And that energy is one that we must encourage our children, our children's friends and the other generations to take that energy that you had and you, show, you showed and continue us into the future generation. So thank you so much for sharing your story. You're very welcome. And, you know, I want to, I guess, add one thing because it's funny, Christine, you say black excellence. And I don't know if I ever perceived it in that way. Um, I was one just always expected to, to perform at a high level, right. And, and, and to do your best. Um, but one thing that I've realized, uh, is my strength. And it was, I got to say, a, a major pain for my parents is I was always asking questions and I was always inquisitive and always, well, why not? You know, when people say, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, why not? That doesn't make any sense. Why not? And so really it's, even today I'm asking those same questions. Why not? Well, it's tough funding black business. Well, why is that the case? Why does that make any sense? So just, I think helping more people, especially black and brown people to um, really uh, lean into their strengths and lean into who they really are. I, I feel like it took me a long time to, to be able to do that. Um, and I think that the earlier people can do that, it's not about the external and what everyone else believes is success for you. It's what you believe is success for yourself. And when you can utilize your strengths to the highest and best purposes, I think that that's when you see a result. Yep. Everyone's got to operate in their genius. That's my philosophy. And my grandfather, who was an educator, as you just mentioned, used to say, push the status quo, which is what you've done, and then be more interested than interesting. So ask more questions when you talk. And I think that's, uh, you know, just highlights what you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one parting piece of, you know, I don't know if it's advice or my hope that people will take away from this is that everyone in their own space can open a door for someone else. It's not about waiting for someone else to change or even the government to change laws and policies to see inclusion. Um, Everyone in their own space has the ability to uh, buy from someone that they've never bought from before. They have the ability to make introductions, do what you can in your own space to create a more inclusive ecosystem. Well, again, Jill, thank you for coming on the show. This has been, um, this is great. You have dropped some serious pearls on us. Um, and if um, you ever want to come back, believe me that you will be welcome. <laughs> I will come back anytime again. Thank you so much for having me and giving me this forum to share some thoughts. Absolutely. And again, thank you for joining us on another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. And you can reach us on getfoundgetfunded.com or any of our social media platforms. Thank you. Check out all of our shows on your preferred podcast platform. Subscribe and write us a review. Don't forget to get all the show notes, key takeaways, and quotes on our website, getfoundgetfunded.com. And catch us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.